Open your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 44. We'll study the entire chapter today, verses 1 to 30. Jeremiah 44, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt, at Migdol, at Tophanes, at Memphis, and in the land of Pathros. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear or to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. And now thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off you from man and woman, infant and child, from the midst of Judah, leaving no remnant? Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt they shall fall by the sword and by famine. They shall be consumed. From the least to the greatest they shall die by the sword and by famine. And they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return there to dwell there for they shall not return except some fugitives then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by a great assembly all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord we will not listen to you but we will do everything that we have vowed Make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers and our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine." And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out our drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? 
Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who have given him this answer, as for the offerings that you have offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials, and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is to this day. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all of you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying we surely will perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. This shall be the sign to you, declares the Lord, that I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hands of his enemies, into the hand of those who seek his life, as I did Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, bless us now as we study another, in some sense, difficult chapter in Jeremiah But Father, such a meaningful one. Father, give us hearts. Give us hearts that only you can give by your spirit that that incline away from the world and its lives. And that say like Samuel of old, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. What happens when God's word is preached? Now this question underscores the entirety of the book of Jeremiah. I've had the occasion to say many times, if if there's a subtitle for the book of Jeremiah, I think that would be it. What happens when the word of God is preached? Because there's far more detail in Jeremiah than in any other Old Testament book, not merely about what he said, the the sermons that he gave, but but then we're given details what happened afterwards. You remember when his temple sermon took place in chapter 7. Then the whole story was told again in chapter 26, only they're focusing on the response to the preaching of God's word. And in this respect, Jeremiah, among the prophets, reads more like a gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, than any other book of the Old Testament. Because what I just said about Jeremiah is true of the gospel records of Jesus. We, we, we hear what Jesus preached, and then we hear what happened afterwards. And the consequences were life or death through faith or unbelief. 
Like Jeremiah, Jesus was rejected by the great mass of those who heard him, although some believed and were saved. Well, Jeremiah 44 contains the prophet's last sermon, at least that we read about. These are his last recorded words preached to the remnant of Judah that had taken refuge in Egypt. Now, we've still got a few chapters to go, but they they record, to the extent that they record Jeremiah's speech, they come from earlier in his ministry. This is the end of his preaching ministry that we learn of. Now, it's interesting as he does so that the people of, the people of Judah, now in refuge in land, in, in Egypt, they are going to be just as hard-hearted as ever before. In fact, if anything, the recipients of Jeremiah's message in Egypt are going to be more obstinately disobedient even than before. In the face of a brazen commitment to idol worship, even an arrogant defense of the practice, Jeremiah is reduced to conclude his message by pointing out, actually the way he concludes sums up what he experienced all through his sorrow-filled ministry because he's going to declare the inevitability of God's judgment on their idolatry, which will occur for this reason, verse 28, that you shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. So much of Jeremiah is about this question. Okay, which is true? Here's the word of God. Here's the word of the Lord. There's the world, the word of the unbelieving world. Which word will stand? As it's going to be argued here that idolatry seems, at least to these expatriates in Egypt, to work out better in the short term. But the word of God, Jeremiah is going to argue, is certain to be fulfilled, and it will bring disaster to those who shut their heart against the prophet's message. Well, the message contained in chapter 44 was directed again to the Jewish exiles gathered in the northern region of Egypt. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt at Migdol, at Tophanes, at Memphis, and in the land of Pathros. Now, Memphis is in the center of northern Egypt. It's where the, the delta connects the Nile to the Mediterranean, but all the other cities are to the northeast towards the direction of Judah and Israel. So this is the kind of the first county that you come into when you flee from Judah into Egypt. And as we would expect, most of the expatriate refugees are found in this region. Uh, now, verse, if verses 1 to 10 sound familiar to us, it's because it's a sermon we've heard more or less Jeremiah give many times before for 20 or 30 years. He's going to remind the people of God's past judgments. In fact, in this case, the recent salutary example, one would think, of the fall of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's going to exhort the people to think clearly about these things. And what's interesting to me is that the Lord keeps providing the message because as we read that, you're going, okay, it's a sermon we've heard before. And it shows a long-suffering patience of God. That's what it shows, an astonishing instance of long-suffering patience for a stiff-necked people. Now, I think if it was up to you and me, we'd be done with them. At this stage of Israel's history and of Judah's history, we'd just get rid of the ingrate covenant people. 
Generation after generation had turned from the Lord into idolatry and then all the sensual evils that go with it. And here we have a community now that has gathered after the desolation, after the judgment of Jerusalem and Judah, and they're in Egypt, and they are still, even now, they're continuing in the ways of evil. And we're reminded of Jesus when he said to his wayward disciples, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? Those words were spoken to the disciples. And many of us think, and rightly so, that the Lord Jesus might be thinking that about us. How long am I going to put up with you? How long am I going to show patience? Of course, the record of the gospel shows the answer is all the way to the cross. Jesus would bear with them until the cross and the open tomb. He's bearing with us still. He's going to bear with us because of his grace, because he loves his people, because he's covenanted with the Father that we will be raised on the last day. The same is true of the God of the Old Testament, who is, of course, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 86.15 extols him, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now to this end, because of this patience, amazing, gracious, long-sufferingness on God's part that he sends Jeremiah, now that he's in Egypt, to a gathering, it seems, of the expatriate Judean people in northeast uh, Egypt. Verse 15 says it's a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt. So you might be thinking, oh, it's a, it's a theology conference. They've invited him to be their speaker. No, 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 no. The context makes clear it's an idol-worshiping festival. That's what it actually is. And so the Lord sends Jeremiah to this place with a reminder of what had just happened in Judah. We see it in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disaster I brought upon Jerusalem, upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them. Well, of course they had not forgotten that. These were traumatizing events a couple of years earlier probably. And so they remembered it, but what they did not remember was why it happened. It was the reason for the judgment and the fall of Jerusalem that they needed to know. They'd forgotten it. He tells them in verse 3, because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor their fathers. Now, not only had the judgment come upon uh, Judah because of the people's idolatry, but more fundamentally even, if you're going to, that, that's the first reason, but there's another reason behind it, because they rejected the prophets whom the Lord sent to them in his grace. Verses 4 to 6, yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear or turn from their evil and make, and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and desolation at this day. Now what we just heard preached by Jeremiah is really a summary of the, old, the entire Old Testament. At least that's the view that Jesus gave as Jesus lamented on the brink of his death, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Matthew 23, 37 to 38. 
You see, Israel did not fall because God had neglected to send preachers of his word. No, but because the messengers were rejected, ignored, reviled, ridiculed, even slain. The reason for this was the people were devoted to false religion and idol worship. And and idol worship's permissive stance towards sensuality and sin. By the way, you see here the symbiotic relationship. The people reject the word of God. Why? Because they love sin more. Sin will keep you from your Bibles or the Bible will keep you from sin. But then, because they did not have the word of God, their hearts were even more corrupted. And when the new prophets came, they, they, they rejected and disliked what was said. Well, Jeremiah appeals to their reasoning. Since it was the sin of idol worship, after all, that prompted the recent destruction of Jerusalem, it made no sense for them to go to Egypt and keep doing it. Verses 7 and 8. And now thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off you from man and woman, infant and child, from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? By the way, notice that he's still arguing out of compassion. He's urging, he, 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 he doesn't want to destroy them. Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you've come to live, so that you may be cut off, become a curse and taunt among all the nations of the earth? Verses 7 and 8. Well, he appeals, his appeal is born of long-suffering patience. Verse 9, have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of your wives, your own evil that they've committed in the land of Judah in the streets of Jerusalem? And the answer is they had forgotten for the simple reason that they had never paid attention to Jeremiah's preaching or that of any other prophet. As a result, what a shock it is that a people who just refused to hear the word of the Lord, that they embrace the very ethos and all the logic of the pagan culture in which they're surrounded. It's not surprising at all. Verse 10, they have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. And so the reason why this once godly nation fell into wickedness and ruin is seen here. And by the way, it's true of every nation. It's true of America. When you have a, a godly nation that was built because of virtue that came from believing people and the teaching of God's word, but then they become prosperous. That's exactly what happened to Judah. And they begin loving pleasure and sin, and then they don't, no longer want to hear the Bible. No longer hearing the Bible, they imbibe the, word, the, 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 the wickedness of evil. And then when the word of God is brought to them, they oppress it and dislike it. Do you realize that that is true not only of nations, but it's true of you, it's true of individuals? Donald Gray Barnhouse, this is many years ago, he was preaching the gospel in a college sorority house. Uh, Probably not that likely today. And as he is gathering of young college women, he's preaching Christ. And afterwards, a a freshman young lady comes to Barnhouse and she's angry and her face is filled with rage. And she tells him, I want you to know I was raised in Christianity, but I've come to college. I've been set totally free of all that garbage and nonsense. Now, Barnhouse was a wise and loving pastor. And so he patiently endured all this then he said to her would you mind telling me when it was what month maybe it was that you discovered that christianity was bunk and that you wanted to be an atheist and she said oh it was november then he said tell me what happened in october what happened in october 
At those words, she broke down in tears because in October she'd fallen into sexual sin and the combination of sinful desire and maybe even more so of shame had turned her against God's word and Barnhouse prayed with her. He helped her to repent. He restored her to his savior, her, to her savior and his. There's some real pastoral wisdom in that example. Well, let me say to you, because of the Lord's mercy, he, look, look at how long-suffering he is. He's now in, we're now at phase 14, you know, whatever it is. He's in Egypt. He still is offering mercy and grace, and he offers it to you. Have you fallen into sin and you're ashamed and so you don't read your Bible? No, no, read your Bible because God will tell you his love for you. You'll be like Gomer in Hosea chapter 3 and he'll take your sin away from you and it'll go to the cross of the Lord Jesus and he will drape you in his love. Don't let the shame of sin keep you from the Bible which is the solution to the shame of sin. Jesus bore our shame on the cross. And if you're tempted into sin, do not let that temptation turn you from God's word. No, God's word will awaken you to the ruin that that sin actually wants to bring into your life. Remember, for instance, Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not remain angry forever, for he delights. He delights in showing mercy. That's the God who speaks in the prophets and the apostles whose word is found in the Bible. And yet how strong is the grip of sin that turns people away from God's word. Barnhouse lamented this with words that perfectly describe the hearers of Jeremiah's last sermons, not to mention the mass of people who neglect the Bible today. Barnhouse said men will read trash rather than the word of God. They will adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God's completely out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. And multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. Well, if the Lord's patience had been entirely exhausted, he would have just brought judgment and destruction on them at that moment. But we know that he continued in patience and mercy because of the warning of judgment that follows. By the way, when the Bible warns of judgment, that's not because God's mean. It's because he's loving. If he was mean, he would just judge you. It's the grace and mercy of God that we see in verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, of God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all of Judah. And we remember Jeremiah 29, the letter to the Babylonian exiles. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, these are not the Babylonian exiles. These are those who've gone to Egypt. But the problem is they've turned from God into, into idolatry. He goes, okay, I, I have plans for evil for you. I'm going to judge you is what he's going to say. They're going to suffer in Egypt, in verse 13, the triple bane so often threatened by the, the prophets and so often brought the sword with famine, with pestilence. And so the expatriate community is going to be, verse 12, consumed in the land of Egypt. 
This is the warning. They would be made an example for the nations. They shall become, verse 12, an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. And the result, verse 14, is that none would escape or survive to return to the land of Judah except a tiny, a remnant of a remnant of a remnant. Just fugitives will all be that's left. Verse 14, and that is God's mercy. Well, in our long journey, we've been studying Jeremiah for a couple of years, I think, our long travels through the life and ministry of the prophet, even now, I do not think we are prepared for what comes next. We've seen in the past, Jeremiah ignored, reviled, marginalized, threatened, imprisoned for his preaching. But we've never quite encountered those who hear his message acknowledge that it's from the Lord, acknowledge its contents, and stubbornly insist, you know, Jeremiah, we're going to take the position that idol worship is better than true and saving faith. But that's what we have here. Even the false prophets, Hananiah and those people earlier in in Jerusalem, they did not approach the cool, calm, and resolute rejection that was shown to Jeremiah by the expatriates of Egypt. Look at what they say in verses 15 and 16. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. There it is. We're not listening. We're tuning you out, Jeremiah. And before we consider, though, they're actually going to make an argument about their idol worship. But first, I think we need to consider the specific idolatry to which they were addicted. They explain in verse 17, but we will do everything that we have vowed. We will make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. Now, the queen of heaven refers to the sacred feminine, which was worshipped under a variety of names in the ancient world. It was all the same thing for the most part. Among the Canaanites, it was Ashtoreth or Asherah. You'll, you'll get Asherah in the early books uh, of, the, of the Old Testament because of the Canaanite context. She was the wife of the storm god Baal. Among the Greeks, she was called Astarte. We've seen that word, that name used. Isis was her name along the banks of the Nile. The cult seems to have begun in Babylon where the goddess was worshipped as Ishtar. If you go to the the British Museum in London, you go to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, you'll see parts of the Ishtar Gate that was dedicated to this feminine goddess. And the the, the way she was worshipped was fairly consistent. It was the burning of incense, the pouring out of libations, and the baking of seed cakes shaped in her image in a feminine form. They would make little seed cakes and they would eat them. It, It was a domestic religion in which the whole family could partake through tasty, fun, but harmless rituals, appealing to the Heavenly Mother for the fertile blessings on which life depends. Well, the worship of Mother Goddess in the place of God the Father and Jesus Christ is, to say the least, prevalent today. In 1993, there was a large gathering of liberal Protestants, mainly Presbyterians and Methodists, who formed a conference called Reimagining God. And there they worshipped the wisdom goddess Sophia. And they rejected, they explicitly rejected the atoning death of Jesus Christ. They got rid of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. They made their own sacrament uh, of drinking milk and eating honey. How much better 
than the old ways. They prayed to Sophia in words as ancient as their idolatry. Listen to their prayer. We celebrate the sensual, here it is, the sensual life that you give us. We celebrate our bodies, our physicality, the sensations of pleasure. Now, what's astonishing is, by the way, it continues today. They just saw this year's their 30th anniversary. They're continuing to gather adherence among uh, liberal Protestants and, and now among uh, progressive emergent types. Uh, they, uh, they describe themselves as a Christian movement. What a remarkable thing to say. Well, if we're concerned about liberal Protestants embracing goddess worship, the situation in the Roman Catholic Church with its worship and veneration of the Virgin Mary is on a far more vast scale. Pope John Paul II referred to Jesus' mother Mary this way as the mother promised in Eden, the woman chosen from eternity to be the mother of the word, the mother of divine wisdom, the mother of the Son of God, hail mother of God. The papacy has declared Mary co-redemptrix, that she is a redeemer on par with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I would argue, certainly by the artwork, that it's Mary very often who's in the foreground. Jesus is background. You'll see Mary and you're adoring her. And Jesus is the baby carried in her arm. That's not a very significant person in terms of his, his saving work. He's just a baby. It's about Mary. And millions of very nice, very lovely Roman Catholics are praying the rosary. But they are seeking blessings from heaven, not from God's Son, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. No, they're seeking blessings from heaven through his mother. They even refer to her with the very language of Jeremiah 44.17. They call Mary the Queen of Heaven. Philip Ryken comments, worshiping Mary is not a harmless addition to the Christian faith. It is rank pagan idolatry. It is as wicked as worshiping the queen of heaven among the expatriate Jews in Egypt. Now, we love Mary. All Christians should love Mary. She's really a hero. You think of her as a teenage girl, and the angel Gabriel comes to her and gives her that news, and she says, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. What faith. I actually often think of her in times of adversity. If that teenage girl can do that, maybe I can suck it up and take a little little difficulty myself. But we don't worship her. We just love her as our sister in Christ. Tonight I'll be preaching Acts chapter 1, and in verse 14 you have the apostles who are after the ascension of Jesus before Pentecost. They're gathered in the upper room and we're explicitly told that Mary, this Mary, is with them. Now it's very interesting. Jesus has gone and Mary is there and they're not looking at her as an alternative redeemer. Well, the son's gone, but we got the mother. So we have a redemptrix. That's utter blasphemy. They're not praying to her. No, she's praying along their side. Why? Because she's a Christian. She's praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Why? Because she's a sinner saved by grace. Nothing blasphemous about that at all. She's a sinner. It's the opposite's blasphemous. She's a sinner saved by grace. She's a believer who looks to her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the eternal son of God. She looks to the blood of his cross and then the sending of the Holy Spirit that he gives. Well, all of those who engage in goddess worship today under whatever guise look back to these Jewish expatriates in Egypt and the whole sacred feminine behind them as their forerunners. 
And these hard-hearted people not only reject the warning of the prophet Jeremiah, but they actually respond to him by saying, we have good reasons. We're going to give you what they think is a compelling argument why we are right to pour out libations to the queen of heaven. Matthew Henry makes a few uh, outlines. He gives an outline of it. First, they appeal to ancient precedent. They would make offerings and pour out drink offerings to the queen of heaven, verse 17, as we did both we and our fathers. This is a venerable practice and tradition. By the way, there may be venerable practice and traditions, but if they're not biblical, they're not, they're, they should be discarded. Uh, and, but that's their argument. This is an ancient practice, Jeremiah. We, like we just came up with this. Secondly, they pled authority that our kings and our officials did likewise. We learned this from Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah of the line of David. We have authority for what we're doing. Thirdly, they argued the widespread practice of goddess worship. It was done, verse 17, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem. And then fourth, now we're getting closer to the rub here, they argued the prosperity of their practice. Verse 17, for then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. Uh, Here's their argument. Jeremiah, I got news for you. Idolatry works. We're making money. We're eating. We weren't eating before. We got peace. We're in Egypt. We're, we're giving libations to Isis, they're going to call her, or Astartes, whatever the names they're going to use. And they say it's worked. And by the way, in the short run, it may feel that way. I remember some years ago, a couple of years ago, a, a well-known Christian, I forget who it was, but she was converted and social media began bombarding her that she'd copped out. She was taken the easy way by, by, by trusting in Jesus. And she came back and said, oh, really? You try to be a Christian sometime. You try to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It was easy not being a Christian. Being a Christian is hard. You're, you're, you have peace with God, and that, that's the best thing of all. But you have war with sin, and you're no longer able to live a carefree prosperous pagan lifestyle that's the way they were thinking uh, they but notice what they're doing oh in such blasphemy they're ascribing blessings that came from the hand of the loving sovereign god and they're ascribing them to the to the evil wicked pagan goddess matthew henry comments we have scarcely seen such an interest an instance of downright daring contradiction to god himself or such an avowed rebellion of the carnal mind? Well, the heart of their argument is found in verse 18. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. You see, they're turning Jeremiah's argument on his head. He said, the reason, they said, no, Jeremiah, the reason Jerusalem fell to Babylon was not because we worship idols, but because we stopped worshiping idols. And they're referring to the reforms of King Josiah, who died in 606 BC. Remember, Josiah came and he explicitly, it was, it was the, the, it was called Astarte worship there, but it's the worship of the queen of heaven. He snuffed it out and he made it illegal. And they're going, that's when everything went wrong. Did you notice, Jeremiah? He died in 606, 609. And, and after that, the disaster. Of course, what they failed to notice is that his son, Jehoiakim, reinstated all those pagan, pagan practices. And that's why the judgment came. But they're actually arguing. By the way, this argument's made a lot. Uh, the second century uh, Roman emperors who persecuted Christians made the argument that Rome's problems came when Christianity came because the old gods were offended. And the apologists, Tertullian and, and Justin Martyr earlier than that, they were arguing against that. Today you'll hear it all the time. 
The problem of our society is not because of the, the moral chaos. It's the, it's the meanness of Christians. The problem is those who aren't getting on the bandwagon, who aren't embracing idolatry and depravity fast enough. That's going to be the basis of persecution. Well, that is the argument they made. John Mackay refers to their argument as a counter-theology of history. They justified idol worship and directed their faith not to the Lord, but to the fertility goddess, because they blamed the lack of idol worship as the cause of the judgment. Now, when the men had given all this to Jeremiah with their twisted logic and direct contradiction of God's word, the women actually chime in in verse 19. They have an afterwards. It's very interesting. The women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? Now, this is almost comically, it's a legal argument from the law of Moses. Numbers 37 to 15 has a provision that if a wife makes a vow without, cult, without uh, uh, telling her husband, and if it's a bad vow and he learns about it afterwards, he has the right to annul that vow. And they're saying, see, it's not our, we're observing biblical headship. You can't criticize us, Jeremiah. And if our husbands wanted us not to do it, they would have told us we're operating under the law of God. You have no right to ask us to stop worshiping the queen of heaven under this twisted logic. Now, again, we shouldn't be surprised at this logic thrown into Jeremiah's teeth when we remember that these are Judean people who had for generations refused to listen to the word of God. Well, so where did their ideas come from? They came from the world. It's no different today. It's either the word of truth or it's the lies of the world. These are the only options that we have. And they picked up their idolatry. Why? Because they would not hear the word of the Lord. Here's what happens when God's word is preached and there is no faith, when it's rejected. This is what's happened. This is the, this is the explanation for the country and the culture in which you are living. This is what happens when the word of God is put away. Now, we understand the connections of events that led God's people into such sordid depravity, but it's still a shocking thing. You know, the, the role of mothers is not to lead their children into idolatry. Oh, it happens. It happens very easily. But if, you are, you're, if you're a Christian mother, oh, what influence the Lord has given you in the hearts of your little children. And they, will, they, they should associate the love of God with the love of their mother that they learned while tugging at her aprons. The, the piety and the early formation of faith, oh, should be fostered by the devoted care and ministry of mothers. She shares godly piety. She shares God's word. She molds the hearts of her little, little children for the sake of Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, fathers have the duty of leading their families in accordance with God's word. I, I think of Genesis eighteen nineteen. God says, I have called, uh, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children, that they may walk in all my ways, and then the promise will be fulfilled. Instead of baking seed cakes with family kitchen idolatry, there should be family worship in the home. There's, by the way, there's nothing wrong with brownies, just not idols. Uh, but there should be room, there's plenty of room, there's plenty of time if we will only do it for family worship. 
for the family to gather in the home to, to read the word of God, to pray, maybe to sing a little bit, but to, to, to worship as a family led by the father and by the mother, the children growing up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Phil Riken notes the deplorable result that the opposite took place among the expatriate Jews of Egypt, but, but it happens today in so many ostensibly Christian homes. Riken says, idolatry was killing the souls of these families. The husbands failed to show spiritual leadership within the home. The wives were leading their families into pagan worship. The result is whole families, whole generations went in flames because they would not listen to and trust the word of God. Well, like so many after them, the idol-worshiping Jews of Egypt, they would answer that they would not That's their answer. We will not accept God's word as spoken by Jeremiah. And so it's fitting, both as the resolution of this episode and really as the summation, the culmination of Jeremiah's entire ministry, that the chapter concludes with Jeremiah throwing down the gauntlet. Okay, we're going to find out whose word shall stand. You may know, verse 29, that my words will surely stand. Jeremiah responds to the reproof dutifully by telling them that they're going to be judged, just as happened to Judah and Jerusalem. The Lord was fully aware that they were worshiping the queen of heaven. Verse 21, as for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah, the streets of Jerusalem, you and your father's kings and officials, the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Moreover, they were completely mistaken about the origins, the cause of Jerusalem's destruction. It was caused by idol worship, not by its neglect. The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds, verse 22, and the abominations that you committed. And that is why this disaster has happened to you, verse 23. Moreover, since the people were now so formally resolved, they had vowed to the worship of idols, Verse 25, saying, you will surely, we will surely perform our vows that we've made to make offerings to the queen of heaven. Then Jeremiah says, then you should go ahead and do it. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Because in this way, you see what's going to happen is they're still going to confirm that the word of God is true. My friends, the word of God is true. And you will either confirm its truth in your salvation through faith or you will confirm its truth in your judgment because of unbelief and idolatry. The Lord says in verse 26 that frankly he would prefer these people not to call upon his name any longer. But he'll judge them as enemies to his kingdom. Verse 27, behold, I'm watching over them for disaster and not for good. Those are chilling words. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 12? I'm watching over my word to perform it. It, When he says I'm watching it over, he's talking about his sovereign omnipotence, his, his providence as the almighty God. And he says now that is going to be working in all things for your destruction. And so the sword and famine will claim the lives of those in Egypt, leaving few in number to return to Judah, and they shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. Verse 28. Not only would this small remnant that would survive God's judgment in Egypt, would they discover in this way that, you know what, God's word is true. But before their own fall took place, the idol-worshiping rebels would receive proof from the Lord to give them advance notice. This is the point of verse 30. 
Jeremiah prophesies that the Lord will give over Pharaoh Hophri, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies, just as he had done to Zedekiah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 29, this, this event, I'm, I'm going to give you a prophecy, Jeremiah says. Get, write, it, write this down. I got a prophecy for you, and it will be a sign to you, verse 29, that I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Well, this prophecy was fulfilled in 570 B.C. when one of Pharaoh Hophri's generals, he'd actually sent him to quell a rebellion. The, he became the leader of the rebellion. He came back. There was a civil war, and he was to, Pharaoh was delivered into his hands, and he was put to death. And this confirmed the word of God as this prophecy was fulfilled. Now, this whole quarrel between Jeremiah and the goddess worshipers of Egypt highlights the essential dispute going on in our world whose word is true. Is the Bible true? That is the question. And if you've not faced it, you really need to because you have the word of God preached and written in the Bible and then you have the word of the culture, the the paganism and its sensuality on the other hand. Which word is true? Let me say, do you dismiss the claims of Scripture the way that they do. Everybody else does it. We, we, like, we like the way. We like sin, so we don't want to read the Bible. Are you just imbibing the scoffing claims of an ungodly world? Well, then, like the idolaters of Egypt, you might do what they did. You can just say, many people say today, well, we'll just find out when it happens. The problem is, the thing that will happen is rather dire. The Bible says, Jesus said, if you, die, if, you, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. It is given to man once to die, and then comes judgment. The event that will show that you are wrong will be the eternal judgment of your soul and your casting into, into hell. I would argue it's better to do something other than wait and see if it is true. Now, Jeremiah establishes here, he recommends a different principle, namely that you would consider the fulfillment of prophecy that is recorded in Scripture. That's, that's what he does here. He gives a hermeneutic of it. It's an apologetic. Okay, I'm going to make a prophecy. When it comes true, my word is true. By the way, he's done this many times. The big one was the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, for years he was saying, don't trust the temple. It's not going to save you. God's going to tear down the city. They said it'll never happen. Well, it did happen. And my friends, the Bible has an internal proof, the fulfillment of prophecies. It's filled with it. You think of the detailed prophecies given hundreds of years before about the birth and the life of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, all of these things, along with many of them, along with Jeremiah's prophecies. God is pleased to put his word to test on the scales of history. I would invite you to consider how to explain the fulfillment of biblical prophecies. You see, it bears, they bear evident, eloquent testimony that the words of Scripture are true and will stand when other words fall away. Well, let me conclude by pointing out that the greatest prophecy of them all that proves the whole of the Christian faith in the Bible was a prophecy made by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he made it in another number of forms. In John 2.19, he was preaching to the Pharisees and the scribes, and they responded exactly how these people responded to Jeremiah. They rejected him and they reviled him, and Jesus said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. That was his answer. I'm going to make a prophecy, and when it comes true, you should know that everything I said is true. 
They say, what does he mean? Well, he put it this way, a little clearer to his disciples, Matthew 17, 22 to 23, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. That's the, that's the greatest prophecy that proves the truth of Christianity in the Bible. Jesus foretelling that he will be put to death by the hands of wicked men and that on the third day he will, though dead and buried, will rise again from the dead. And that is, in fact, the greatest proof that the gospel is true. The resurrection of Jesus is an event that was witnessed by many people after the fact. Here's how Paul put it 30 years later. Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Peter, Cephas, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can just ask them. They actually saw him. I want to ask you, have you considered the basis for Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because this event proves that the Bible is true along with Christianity. And therefore, God's word will stand when all the lies on which you've been living, banking your hopes for the future, they will have fallen away. I would argue to you, I would urge you, that the best way for you to make a decision about this all-important question is to pick up the Bible and read it for yourself. I would recommend you start with one of the four Gospels. You just pick the one you want to start with, and you read the Gospels. And if you do so with an open heart, you will discover an earlier prophecy of Jeremiah to come true. He said this, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. And if you open the Bible and you really say, Lord, okay, I'm willing to be, I'm willing to learn the truth. Reveal your grace to me. Reveal Jesus to me. If you want me to believe by your grace, speak to me in your word. Well, there's another great prophecy and it will bring you the greatest blessings imaginable. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, in our own way, all of us who believe were saved by you through the power of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you have persuaded us. We did not assume that your word was true. No, most of us assume the opposite, but you have shown us you've opened our eyes to the truth of your word and i pray that you would do that to more and more people because lord your word will stand and you will have glory we pray lord that you would glorify yourself in grace through idolatrous unbelievers as i was as we were and you showed mercy and you opened our hearts by your word but we lord we know as well that you will be glorified equally when your word of judgment stands oh have mercy lord we pray Save the lost, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.